If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 13. We'll look at that in just a moment. Well, Happy New Year to everyone. It's good to see you in this new year. Let me pray and then we'll take some time to look at God's word today. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you, the God of heaven and the God of earth, the God who sees and the God who hears, the everlasting God, God Almighty. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are concerned for for us and you are well aware of what's going on on planet Earth. We thank you that you're concerned about the children of man and that you work so that we might be in relationship with you. I thank you for another opportunity to speak on your behalf, to expound on what your Holy Spirit, uh, through your prophets and apostles have written so that we might be able to know you and live in relationship with you. I do ask for your mercy today and the way of your spirit guiding my words to minister to the minds and hearts of those who are listening. We pray that you are honored and that people's lives are guided in the right direction, uh, a direction that will end up in ultimate, ultimately in allegiance and obedience to you. Uh, to your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that, pray that you are glorified today in all that is said and done. We give you praise and thanks for allowing us in your great mercy to see 2022. We count it as a precious blessing. Would you be with us today? And Lord, if there's anything that would keep us from being a tool in your hands today, would you cleanse us um, and pardon us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask this humbly in his great name. Amen. So, by God's kindness, we've entered into 2022, which is a, a wonderful thing to be able to see another year. Um, and it's generally at this time of year that for some, now some of you may have already been proactive and sat down with pen and paper sometime in the early part of December and started to write out what things you wanted to accomplish in 2022. Others, you may be doing that this week or may have done that yesterday, took time to write out what it is you wanted to achieve. Perhaps some of these things might be things that are on your list. Uh, Perhaps this way for some of you, uh, because December was the time of a lot of eating, uh, your goal for the first part of the year is to get back to the gym and to uh, help get rid of some of that Christmas gain. And that may be some of your goals. Others for you, you're looking at it and you're thinking financially about the future. And you're thinking, hey, I want to save X amount of dollars this year. Or for others, it may be I want to pay off X amount of dollars. For some of you, you're in the stage where you're saying, hey, I think we're ready and we want to start having kids. And for others of you, you're at the point in your life where you're like, no, this year our goal is to not have any more kids. (laughs) For some of you as grandparents, you're thinking, you know what? Last year, I didn't have a chance to really connect with my grandchildren. So this year, what I want to do is find more opportunities 
weekends, times where I can spend time and build a, a relationship with my grandchildren. For some of you, that, that's a lot easier because they live close. And for others, you know, that's going to involve time and travel and you're going to, to make that an investment to be intentional about developing a relationship with, with them. For others of you, you want to take another step in pursuing another degree this year. Some of you, hey, you're going to pick up a second, third, or fourth language. That's a goal for you this year. You're going to acquire a new language before uh, the end of this year, or at least make headway on that. Some of you, you're like, hey, look, I, I want to take some of this extra time that I have uh, and find an organization that I believe in what they're doing, and I want to spend some time volunteering and serving and giving back to the community. For others of you, perhaps on your list this year is that long-awaited renovation that you want to do in your home. You've been saving up for it, and this is the year that you're going to get that accomplished. Maybe that's to add on a new deck, to add some new room onto your house, to, to change out your kitchen or your bathroom, and that's what you're going to to update this year. And there are a variety of other goals that we could probably name that are on your list for what you want to accomplish in 2022. Well, in the midst of all of that planning, as you're planning, I want to just remind you of something that I would say you ought to keep at the forefront of your goals for 2022, and I would say every year going forward as long as you live. And that's what I want to spend our time on focusing on today is what should be the primary focus of your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I would say, if I were to sum it up, it is to live for God and to bear fruit for God in your life. But one of the things the Bible makes us aware of is that there have to be right conditions in our life in order for us to bear fruit for God. And that's what we're going to look at. And so, of course, you know by us telling you Matthew 13, we'll get a chance to look at that. Well, I was reminded of this last year um, by way of some things that were going on in my house. Of course, many of you know that my wife homeschools our, our children. And uh, my son, who's in fourth grade, uh, was doing a science project in his class. And, and one of the things that, that I ran into was the science project. And so uh, he was learning about plant growth. And you probably have done this project in school with your kids where you take different seeds, the same seed, and you put it in different conditions to see uh, if you neglect certain things, will that seed grow? And so... Uh, one morning, I opened my refrigerator there, and there inside of my refrigerator was this jar with a bean in it in my refrigerator. And my wife told me that, that was part of the science project. I should not remove it, and so I didn't. Uh, and so you can see, uh, they'll show you on the slide, one of the conditions they had was to deprive it uh, of different things. You can go to the next slide uh, to show it. So they were in the, in the process of depriving it of warmth. So... They, they took the seed, they put it in a condition, a frigid condition, which was our refrigerator, and what their end result was that the seed uh, did not grow at all. So they took another seed and they, de and, and they deprived it of light. Um, and so they put it in this dark condition and they just left it there for weeks. And uh, as it turned out, it did not grow. Uh, another seed they took and they deprived it of water. No water was given to it, uh, and as a result of that, as you, they observed over time and as they watched it over several weeks, nothing changed. It, it remained in a, as a seed, no, no difference. Uh, and then the last condition that they had was they had this little thing that they placed in the jar, and it was to deprive it of oxygen, to deprive it of oxygen. Uh, unfortunately, my son, because he wanted to keep watering the plant, kept opening it up so oxygen got in, and... Uh, 
And what ended up happening was that it did grow a little, but you know, the idea was it was not supposed to grow. <laughs> you're supposed to keep the oxygen out. So, so it, it did grow a little. And then there was a fifth jar in which they uh, provided all of the things that you see listed there. Oxygen, water, sunlight, and warmth. And it grew and grew. And so they put it in soil and it continued to grow uh, to the point it was able to reproduce other beings. But in order for that to happen, what my son learned was that all of those conditions were necessary for growth to reach a state of, if we could put it in the language, bear fruit or reproduce. And if any of those had been neglected, then it would not have reached that stage. And what I would offer to you today is that what my son learned about plant growth in the physical world has a correlation to our spiritual lives as well. We need all of the right conditions present in our life in order for us to grow spiritually and reach a stage of fruit bearing. Now, one writer by the name of Dr. Keener summed up the importance of fruit bearer with this fruit bearing in the kingdom with this one line. He says, the only conversions that count in the kingdom are those confirmed by a life of discipleship. The only conversions that count in the kingdom are those confirmed by a life of discipleship. With that being the case, then, what are the right spiritual conditions that are necessary for us to have the right environment spiritually so that we ultimately reach the stage of becoming fruitful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's why we have turned to Matthew 13, because here, uh, as in Mark um, and in Luke, Jesus unfolds for us uh, what those conditions are. Uh, and this, this parable, you have to think about it, has endured for some 2,000 years and has proven to be true over time. So let us stand as we read the initial parable for God's word. So Matthew 13, we'll pick up at verse 1 and we'll go down through verse 7. I'll read aloud as you follow along silently. And for those at home, you can uh, follow along silently in your Bible as well. So Matthew 13, we find these words. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears... Let him hear. You may be seated. Thank you. So what is it that Jesus is teaching us about the conditions for discipleship with this story, this parable that he tells us? Well, he goes on later to give the proper interpretation to his disciples who request this of him in private. And thankfully, uh, this was recorded for us because he interprets the parable for us. I, you know, we 
probably wish that Jesus would do this with every parable, but this is one of the ones that we get him to do that. And he picks that up in verses 18 through 23. There's an important part in the middle there, but I'll come back to reference that in a moment. Uh, And as he explains this, he gives us what are the hindrances uh, and spiritual conditions that might prevent us from becoming or reaching the stage of being fruitful disciples. And what you're going to notice in each one of these is that there is this direct connection to our ability to bear fruit and our receptivity to Jesus and God's words. And that's the connection that he's going to make. One commentator by the name of Douglas O'Donnell pointed out that there are both in each one these pairs that are happening within the parable, an internal and an external factor. And so I'm going to pair them up like that to give you the internal and the external factor which affects each one of these three soil that that gives us the hindrances. Well, the first set of hindrances we see Jesus unpacks for us us in verses 18 and 19. So let's look at verses 18 and 19 together. So you just drop down in your Bible there. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So the internal factor here has to do with the heart condition of this person. So in each of these, this internal condition is something about the, the, the type of heart that the person has. The path-like person, we might call them, lacks what Matthew calls, different than the other two gospel writers, uh, a um, hard heart, we might, we might say, uh, and Matthew says they lack this, this uh, necessary idea of understanding, which he's going to explain in a moment. Uh, back in 13, 15, you'll notice there that the heart is the place of understanding. And as such, he says, Jesus says that the person, because they lack understanding, this understanding stands for this idea of receptiveness to the word. They don't receive the word. And like a path, the teaching that has been spread here in this context, of course, by Jesus and later by others, remains, Jesus pictures, as on the surface of their heart. And as Luke's gospel informs us, this lack of receptivity in the form of understanding ultimately prevents a person from ever reaching a stage of belief. And because they don't reach a stage of belief, they never can reach the point of being saved. Without belief, there's no salvation. As the Net Bible in the note indicates, the word of Jesus has the potential to save if it germinates in a person's heart, something that the devil is very much against. And this is this other, this is this other factor that plays in this person's heart that Jesus brings out. It's not just the internal issue that's going on. There's also external forces at work to make the matters worse. Now, we don't always talk about this in our specific society, but Jesus says this is a reality that's impinging upon everyone who lives in this world. There are malevolent spiritual beings which we don't have access to, nor do we have knowledge about their movements and their workings in the world, but yet in the background, they're working, and they, for the person who is path-like in their heart condition, they use this opportunity to snatch away the word that has been sown in their heart. 
If we were to consider Paul's writings later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we know that Satan works to keep people blind to the truth about Jesus and God's will. What Jesus doesn't tell us, though, is how these spiritual powers access the human heart. What is their relationship and their ability to influence a human heart so as to rob it of God's word if it is a path-like heart? He doesn't explain it. He just simply states it as a fact of reality. We don't know how they necessarily accomplish it. We might put some forward some suggestions, but Jesus doesn't tell us. All we know is that there are these other beings who we cannot see who are around looking for those whose hearts, hearts are hard to sabotage them. And so Jesus says, ultimately, as Matthew portrays, if there is a lack of understanding of the message of the kingdom, then you can believe that if you have this spiritual condition, you'll never reach a point where you will become fruitful. Now, why is there a lack of understanding on the part of this people? Well, in the preceding text, Jesus quotes from Isaiah dealing with some form of judgment from God upon the people of Israel, but I think can apply to others. And he says, because ultimately these people have in some way closed or hardened their hearts to the message of, to the message of Jesus. Now, in Jesus' context, various ideas have been put forward as to why this is. Some, it may be simply because they don't take the word seriously. When they're hearing the word, they become forgetful. Uh, they listen, they move on with their day, and the word has no, it doesn't take up root. Some is just general lack of interest. They hear it, but they've got other things they're interested in, they don't. One writer, commentator, described some uh, in Jesus' context, giving us a, an idea of what it might have looked like in his context and how it functioned in theirs, which might give us a window into our own context. He says this, of course, when we're thinking about this type of specific soil, one of the first type of people that come to mind is the Pharisees. They certainly fit nicely into this soil sample. At first, they are curious about Jesus. You kind of see that in Matthew's gospel as he unfolds it. Along with the crowd, at the beginning, they think, can this be the Christ? Let's give him a good look. But it doesn't take long for their hearts to harden. When they hear that Jesus say that he has the authority to forgive sins, their hearts begin to tighten. And when they see him welcome sinners to the table of fellowship, their hearts start to slowly freeze. And finally, once he breaks one of their sacred laws by healing a man on the Sabbath, their small, cold hearts become calcified and as hard as the floor. And the seed still sitting right atop their hard hearts is an easy swallow for Satan. However, the Pharisees are not alone in Jesus' context that fall into this category. There are many others as well. Another group would be the people of Jesus' own hometown. Their mindset was, Jesus sure acts like the Messiah. He speaks like the Messiah, but he can't possibly be the Messiah because he's one of us. We know Jesus. Isn't that Joseph's son? Oh, he, he's just from our hometown. He can't be anybody more than what he is. He's just one of us. In our context, what might this look like? As several commentators point out, Jesus, uh, I think, intentionally leaves the identity of the sore open. So it refers to him definitely as the primary sore. It will ultimately refer to his apostles, who he's going to send out on his behalf, and then to their disciples all the way down to this present day. Anyone who spreads 
the word of the kingdom of God, the message about Jesus and God's will ultimately becomes the sword of the word. And it can happen in all kinds of contexts. It can happen in a church setting like it's happening this morning where the word is being spread. Or it can happen simply on the street or it can happen in your living room. You could sow the word as you tell others the message about God's will and his kingdom that has come through Jesus Christ. The person who hears the word but has a path-like heart ends up, as what Dr. Keener says, the message ends up going in one ear and coming out the other. See, there's something going on internally. The problem, as Jesus is making clear, is not the problem with the word. The problem is the one who hears the word. And for the path-like person, somewhere inside there's this internal resistance that keeps them from being receptive and ultimately in Matthew's words drawing upon Isaiah's word they lack understanding and thus as a result become an easy target for the devil and those who align with his agenda to rob this person of the opportunity to reach the stage of belief and as a result they never reach salvation that's the path like person. And if there's internal resistance in your heart to the truth of God's word, then yes, you will never reach the stage of being a fruitful disciple. We find the next hindrances pair in verses 20 and verse 21. Let's look there together. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. Now this uh, soil sample is going to be similar to the next soil sample that we're going to read about because it can only be identified with the passage of time. The internal heart issue here in this case has to do with what many have summed up as shallow commitment to Christ. Shallow commitment to Christ. See, the rocky soil-like person embraces the word, notice what the text says, with joy. There is some form of receptivity to the word, and in some way, in some kind of way, they have some type of understanding. But the problem is they only follow Jesus for a period of time, or as Luke puts it, believe for a time. It's like a jar with hairline fractures in it. You can't see the defects in it until pressure is put upon it. And when pressure is put upon this person's heart from externally, they lapse into unbelief. The external factor here, of course, as Jesus portrays it, that pairs off with this one, is the testing of a person's faith, the internal condition, by the external factor of affliction or persecution that comes from the world. And thus, what becomes true about this person's heart is that belief proves to be a temporary fixture in his or her life. So when life becomes difficult... The commitment to Christ comes up, and when pushed comes to shove, Christ is surrendered. 
There's a notable example in church history about such a person. So let me draw upon BBC recounting the events of what happened some 400 years ago in Japan. So in 1614, there was a strict nationwide ban on Christianity that was issued in Japan. Foreign missionaries were quickly expelled from the country. Those who refused to leave were either arrested, killed, or imprisoned, or forced to renounce uh, their faith in Jesus. See, Japan at that time as a whole had entered this kind of period of isolation. They wanted to cut off almost all contact with other, other nations because that was the stance of the government at the time. And it's into this context that we get several things happening, and one notable example of a specific priest comes up, and it happened in 1633. Uh, his name, if I do my best to pronounce it, is Cristobal Fajera, a Portuguese Catholic priest and Jesuit missionary who had been sent to Japan to share the message of Jesus. Well, as he was in, caught up and swept up in this movement of what was going on in Japan, he was tortured for five hours and as a result of that, renounced Christianity and faith in Jesus. He became the most famous of the fallen priests and changed his name to Swano Chuan uh, and then registered at the Buddhist temple in accordance with Japanese law and considered himself to be a member of the Zen sect. He would go on to live in that state of unbelief for another 17 years after which his life would expire. And then, as Hebrews tells us, he faced divine judgment. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone did this. To give you a bit of a contrast, later in the article, they raised this idea that later in the second half of the 16th century, the same time, somewhere after the 1650s, 1660s, at least 26 other people, missionaries, were crucified for faith in Jesus. They did, not die. They, did, they did not give up their faith, but went on and died for their faith. And I would say in that way, they persisted. They, they kept the faith despite the circumstances and the external pressure of crucifixion. And I was reminded for uh, this week as I read some of the publications that came in the mail to me as I get different ones from different organizations that, you know, uh, look for donations and things like that. As I was reading through a couple of those publications this week, I was reminded that this is a very real pressure that is put on many of our other brothers and sisters that occupy and live in other places in the world. Not so much so. We, we do have some pressure here, but not to the extent that others do. And so for them, it's, it's more of the concern for me that this would be the kind of soil that some of them might be. It's probably more so for other believers in the world that they would be faced with this type of situation. But I like the way that Dr. O'Donnell sums up the point of this soil. He says this, See, the true test of discipleship is not whether or not one has received the gospel with joy at some dateable moment in history. The true test of discipleship is whether, one, whether or not one picks up his cross and follows Jesus, not for one day, not for two weeks, not for three months, not even for four years, but continues to follow Jesus until he is called home. You have to remain faithful to the end. The last pair of hindrances we find in verse 22. Verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful. 
So like the previous soil, this thorn-filled person can only become evident with the passage of time. They for a while look like a genuine believer. It's only with the passing of time that the truth about what's going on internally emerges to show who they really are. See, as Luke says, or as Matthew puts, belief persists only for a period of time. The problem with this one is that there, is, there are in the heart these competing desires which Jesus portrays as thorns or weeds. There is this desire to follow Jesus in some sense alongside all of these other competing desires in their heart. And ultimately, these other desires over time went out. So what might be some of these other things that would be weeds or thorns that would grow up in a person's heart so as to choke out the word that has been received? And thus they prove to be unfruitful. Well, we simply could just compile a list of what the gospel writers say. And here's what, if you put it together, kind of what we find from all of the three gospel writers who record this. The cares of the world. Desires for wealth or riches. Desires for other things. Worries about this world and pleasures of this life. Now, whereas the previous heart type fails because of external pressure, this one succumbs to the pursuit of pleasure. The external factor here that pairs up with this heart condition is the temptations that come from the world. See, like the heart before, this person's heart is divided. They give in ultimately to their desires for other things that lead them away from living a life of faith in Jesus Christ and ultimately prove to be his disciples. And as Jesus says, the picture he paints is that it is a choking that is happening. The life is being drained out of following Jesus by other desires. Now, the apostle Paul gives us one such example, a historical example in his own ministry. We have spoken about him before, but his name is Demas. Listen to what Paul writes about him in just quick one sentence in passing. He had written other things about Demas in earlier letters, but he writes this in a later letter. And he says this, for Demas, and notice what he says about him, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Other desires in this once co-worker of ministry have taken over and he has abandoned Paul and left the ministry in pursuit of love of the world. And so now this strong attraction causes him to pursue temporary pleasure, which ultimately reveals a temporary faith. And so Paul warns Timothy against such things when he writes to him. Because you as I, like Paul, we don't know people's hearts. We have to watch them play out over a period of time. Listen to what he writes to Timothy. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving 
that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, to be very honest with you, as I go over these three soils, this is the one that concerns me the most for us. Whereas the other soil, the rocky soil, is one that most likely is happening for our our other brothers and sisters, this is the one of greatest danger, I believe, for the American Christian. In the 12 years that I've served here as as a pastor at Living Water, I have unfortunately witnessed the Thornfield heart evidence itself in time on a number of occasions. I've watched people stand here in moments of baptism and have such moving testimonies that bring you to the point of weeping as they talk about the transformation that God has wrought in their heart through faith in Christ. I listen to them swear allegiance to Christ and that they're going to follow him. They go on to, for a period of time, serve faithfully in church ministries, But as the days and the years and the months pass, somewhere along the way, they turn. And for one reason or another, whatever pleasure it was, whatever it was that they wanted, more than they wanted Christ, they left Christ and pursued that pleasure. Some of them I ran into years later and I saw them living in states of rebellion against God and forsaking him totally in pursuit of whatever that desire was. In their life. Now, had you asked me at the day of their baptism, did I believe that they were a believer? I would have said to you, yes. But as time went on, it appeared and it evidenced itself that there was something else going on in their heart and they proved to be Thornfield. And they abandoned Christ for whatever it is that their pleasure was. In telling this, Jesus bids us to ask ourselves, what kind of heart do you have? Well, Jesus goes on to describe what a good heart looks like. He tells us what good soil looks like in verses 8 and 9. Let me go back and pick that up. He says, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears let him hear. He goes on to interpret this for us in the latter part of verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. See, unlike the other three, all the conditions are right in this case. The good soul heart person is the one who understands the words in Matthew's drawing upon Isaiah's term. The heart is one who is receptive to the word of God, the message of Jesus, and to Jesus himself without resistance. The word takes up root, that is, ultimately the person commits to Jesus wholeheartedly. And we, those competing desires, are ultimately rooted out so that what becomes the main focus in this person's life is following Jesus above all other things. And the result, when all the conditions are right, 
is that this soil bears spiritual fruit. And it comes in time. It shows up after time. Now, the other thing we ought to notice is Jesus pairs here, uh, here three good soils in comparison to the three bad soils. All of them produce fruit, but not at the same amount. However, Jesus calls every ground that produces good fruit good, even though they don't yield the same. But what's fascinating is what Matthew and Mark do with the accounts, unlike Luke. Luke only mentions uh, the most promising yield out of it. But Matthew and Mark list one, Matthew in descending order, and Mark in ascending order, uh, these different amounts that come out. But what's fascinating is the amount of yields that Jesus gives us, 160 and 30. Now, at least you think the 30 is a low producer, and you think, man, I'm only a 30 disciple, you know. At least you're thinking that you got to see it in context. Listen to Dr. Blomberg. He says, the most unusual feature of this parable is the extraordinary crop produced by the seed that fell on good soil. A 10 to 20-fold yield was often considered superior. So in this case, what Jesus is saying is, with the good soil, they're all super abundant producers. Everybody exceeds expectations. Just some are extra large producers, some are double XL, and some are triple XL producers. But all of them are good producers. Not one of them failed to produce in abundance. All of them do, and that's why they're called good soil. So the question then becomes, what is this fruit that we're looking for? Well, Paul told Timothy at the end of his warning about succumbing to the temptation for the pursuit of pleasure of this world. But he says it earlier in one of his earlier letters. As a matter of fact, one of his first letters that he writes when he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, what Jesus tells us is ultimately that the evidence that one is a disciple is the fruit in one's life. The fruit doesn't save you, but it does confirm that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, thankfully, in John's gospel, Jesus tells us how it is that one can become good soil and how we can avoid the hindrances that he has named in this text that prevent us from reaching a fruit-bearing stage. Listen, it's a familiar passage. Jesus said this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my fathers glorify that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments 
and abide in his love. Now, you probably noticed something in there that Jesus gives a warning about what happens to those who do not bear fruit, which would be these other three grounds. Though they may proclaim to be attached to Christ in some way or even prove to show some signs of like they're going to be or look like, they ultimately prove not to be really attached to Christ. And notice what he says, for those who don't bear fruit, they're cut off, gathered, and burned. He's talking here about final judgment, and it is the removal from Christ's presence for those who do not bear fruit because there is ultimately no life in them. Let me conclude our time together today with another example from church history. Christianity Today captures it for us. So we have little idea of what brought Perpetua to faith in Christ or how long she had been a Christian, or even how she lived her Christian life. But thanks to her diary and that of another prisoner, we have some idea about what her last days were like. And it was an ordeal that that was so uh, impressive that the great uh, figure in Western church history, probably the greatest figure in all of Western church history, Augustine, uh, preached four sermons about the end of her life. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who, at the turn of the third century, lived with her husband, her young son, and her slave Felicitas in Carthage. And at this time, North Africa was the center of vibrant Christianity. And then it's no surprise then that the emperor who was against it because he thought that it violated Roman patriotism or, or kept people away from that, uh, decided to cripple Christianity. And he thought that he would start his movement there. And so he put his attention on North Af- Africa. And so he had some people arrested. And, and one of the first places that he started was a baptism class. Now imagine that. You're having baptism class and in walk the authorities and arrest you. And out of these five people who were taking baptism class, Perpetual was one of the people who was in the baptism class. While she was in prison, her father came to her, who was a pagan, and immediately wanted to reason with her and for her to just simply renounce Christianity, renounce faith in Jesus. And if by doing that, she would free herself from being put in a situation of danger, she could go back to living with her husband and living with her son. And it's interesting, her conversation. She said this as as a recorder of her. She said this to her father in response. Father, do you see this vase sitting here? She, She replied, could it be called by any other name than a vase or a vase, if you want to call it that? And no, he replied. And then she said in response, well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, which is a Christian. Shortly after, she would go on to give her life to maintain her faith in Jesus because she would not turn from being a disciple despite the cost to her. As we embark on 2022 amongst all the things that you're putting on your agenda to accomplish this year, I would say that the one overarching thing that ought to be on your agenda and my agenda is being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Be receptive to Jesus and his message. Be receptive to the word of God. Be committed to Jesus despite the cost to you and seek the aid of the Holy Spirit to root out in your heart any desires that are competing with you being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And by the mercy of God, by the Spirit's work in your life over time, you'll see the fruit of the Spirit produced in your life.
What did I say put on your list? Make sure that on your list this year, as you set your goals, is to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. And by being a faithful disciple, you will prove to be a fruitful disciple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word as we're challenged by this parable that was communicated some 2,000 years ago that has stood the test of time. We thank you for this sober warning to be reminded, Lord, that we need to persist until the end, to persevere. We do that by living in relationship with Jesus, abiding in him, and the Spirit working in us to produce that fruit as we labor alongside Christ to be obedient and yield to his leading in our lives. May our hearts be receptive to the word as it is sown into our hearts. Maybe it be, as Pastor Paul prayed, firmly rooted in us that we show and prove to be commitment. And may any competing desires, Lord, by your spirit be brought out and rooted out and removed so that the conditions are right and that you, you are the one who gives the increase, producing us that fruit of the spirit. And what is seen on us is love and joy and peace and gentleness and self-control and patience and endurance. Lord, in all these things that we would bear fruit. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that this would be the top priority on our goals that we have set as we embark upon another year that you have graced us with. And now, Father, we pray for the gifts as we get a chance to participate and worship you through giving. We pray that, Lord, that the giving is not simply merely external, but come from a place of submission and gratitude and gratefulness and thankfulness. And we give because we love you and appreciate the kindness that you have shown to us, which we do not deserve. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.